Welcome to Foreman of Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And today, Cindy, it is something that is near and dear to both of our hearts. We're talking about Southern food. Mm-hmm. Love it. Southern cooking, Southern hospitality. Those are those are great, like, they're sort of cliche, but it's funny. With, with cliches, there comes, I mean, they become cliches because there's some truth that starts that, that momentum of thought, right? Mm-hmm. So, so what are the things that attracted you, because... You worked a lot with with Southern cooking and researched Southern cooking a lot. What are the things that attracted you to it? You know, having lived in North Carolina when I was a little girl, I was actually born in Richmond but didn't live there very long. But we, we lived in North Carolina from the time I was three years old until I was nine years old. And I lived in, in Charleston, South Carolina at the beginning of my uh, work life and uh, on and off for about eight years. Um, I think that it is... For me, as a lot of things that I love, it's the history. I, I love old, old houses. I love learning about people's lives, um, understanding how people lived, um, you know, things as simple as how people could cook over a wood fire and live that way <laughs> and eventually moving to, the, to a, a wood-burning stove and just imagine what life was like and, and how, they, how they managed it. So what... What got your attention about the history of Southern food? I, I think it's, it's fascinating. The whole foundation of all regional Southern cooking uh, was when Captain John Smith landed in 1607 in Jamestown, Virginia, um, and met the Algonquin Native American tribe that was in that region. And these folks came together. Uh, the Native Americans had, had been living for 8,000 years off of corn as a staple of their diet. And the English settlers came over across on their ships with hogs. And this is the beginning of the found, absolute foundation of American Southern cooking at that, from that time period on. So it's all about corn and hogs. There, and, is, there is worse stuff in the world than bacon <laughs> and cornbread. Well, and we're not the only just, country that that is a foundation of cooking you know this is yeah. something all over the world so it, it it has it has managed to feed people for m- m- thousands of years and i think it's also fascinating the products that were already here and the other products that were brought here not only by the english settlers but also by the africans there's so many native products to the you know to to the americas that you think of as being from different european cultures you think of tomatoes you think oh italian food Tomatoes are not from Italy, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> you know, they, that's you, you. You think of a, a famous French dessert, peach melba, right? Mm-hmm. Peaches are not from France, right? You know, all all of that's from the from the Americas. So, just a couple of the products that were already here. I'll say it kind of quickly: pumpkins, squash, beans, peas, onions, all kinds of berries, cherries, muscadine grapes. Turkeys, deer, rabbit, ducks, pigeons, turtles, and of course, all of our wonderful seafood that we all know what is local. And the Africans uh, were responsible for bene seeds, which we also call sesame seeds, collard greens, watermelon, yams, okra. I mean, so many wonderful products that we we uh, love and cherish in our southern cooking. And, and the different regions are so influenced by what was also in that region, of course. That informed the cooking of that specific area as well as the cultures that habitated those areas. 
yeah, you took it back further to the Native Americans. I mean, showing up in a place where you don't know what the products are and how to raise them and how to cook them. I mean, they literally kept the people coming from Europe from starving. And, you know, that became uh, such a foundation of the cooking. And, you know, you have these words that you, okay, so pone is, is the word that would have been, you know, what they used to call corn. And you have all these other terms like hoe cake, ash cake, which would have been simply some sort of form of corn, finely ground, roughly ground, mixed with water, if they had salt. Um, And then it would have been cooked on some sort of flat rock or on a hoe, which is why they were called hoe cakes, in a fire. So this is where all that cornbread goodness starts. Um, And then, you know, obviously then we develop things like baking powder and baking soda, you know, hundreds, thousands of years later. And, you know, now we have the ability to lift product, you know, to let things rise and to really improve perhaps what we would consider the texture of something. So the the evolution of the cooking is just so deeply rooted in our country and so important uh, to our history. And my knowledge is really of the low country area. I, I have studied it a good bit and the other regions I am less familiar with. And my great-grandmother, uh, and you heard me talk about her a million times, came from eastern North Carolina, not mm-hmm. that far from the seacoast. And, yeah, the, the cooking that I knew as a kid was sort of connected to what you showed me from South Carolina, but it was a very different thing. And that got me thinking about the regionality of Southern cooking. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously, I mean, the, the, the truth of it is that agriculture is what drives it. I mean, product is what drives any cooking. Mm-hmm. But agriculture is what drives it. I mean, that's... Well, and that's one of the reasons why Charleston was so, uh, such a, uh, at that time, you know, hundreds of years ago before the Civil War was a cultural center because it's a seaport, a major seaport. So they had the opportunity to not only have their local agricultural product and the water and the, and the product from their waterways, but, and also what was obviously wildly growing in the region, but they had the ability to have all these ships coming into seaport, which was bringing in all kinds of other th- products. So that made that cooking of that region very, very rich. Um, and, you know, they would have gotten products from Spain or products from Italy or wherever these ships were coming into port from. Yeah, I mean, the f- first time you showed me a, a, a recipe, one of the old, well, you'd see them written in the books, receipts. Yes. Um, <laughs> of, uh, of a dish that had curry in it. Mm-hmm. It's like, of course they did, because that's where the, the trade was done there. Right. That's the, that's the other way that melting pot cuisine really happens. That's a good point. I love you know? that. Yeah. And it's funny, Maryland is, is uh, a different version of Southern cooking, and I think is legitimately mm-hmm. Southern in that it's definitely agricultural and, and, and product-driven. Uh, this is still corn country, no oh question. Oh my goodness, right, for sure. This is the, the I mean, to, in my opinion, the peak of tomato country. <laughs> yeah. The, all, all the, you, you, got, somebody might argue with you, but I agree, our tomatoes yeah, are Yeah, I mean, that's, I've, I've not had any in the South as good, and right. and God okay. bless the Jersey tomato people, but <laughs> but they are not as fortunate as we are. Well, we are blessed. Our, our, we are, yeah, our tomatoes are fantastic. Well, and also we're a major waterway. So that's the other connection is that we continue the connection with the South in that, you know, if, if, if you're going to share family between regions, uh, you're going to share, uh, it, it, predominantly it was women cooking, and they are going to share recipes with their sisters, their, their daughters, their, the grandmothers with, you know, 
friends, that was a big way of communicating and helping each other was sharing recipes. And it was often verbally um, and rarely written. Um, so that's another reason why also why cookbooks were so important when they eventually started uh, being available to everyone was people needed the written recipes, as you call them, receipts. Well, I mean, it's, it's funny that who was the first important American cookbook author? Martha Washington. Uh, Mary Randolph? Oh, Mar well, okay. Oh, All right. Yeah. 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 Prior to Martha Washington. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. It was literally just her, her, her receipts. <laughs> oh, I have her book. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. And it's so wonderful because it's written the way that it was written. It hasn't been updated. But that would have been, you know, obviously in the 1700s and the Mary Randolph's 1824, which was a great recipe book that helped a lot of women. And, and, and one of the other things about those books is they also taught you how to make soap. Um, how, you know, about medicinal things, how to run it. Basically, it was, it was not just about cooking. It was about how to run a household um, and, and a farm. So they were very, very helpful. You know, if you, if you think about, you know, starting in the 1607, you know, people are just uh, coming from Europe to settle here. And then, you know, even 100 years later, the, you know, people have built homes and farms and, you know, there's a, there are communities and now you have the idea of entertaining. And that's when food really begins to change because now you're cooking for large groups of people. There's more product available because you've, you've, you've established farms and you're sharing between farms and some of it's actually being, you know, uh, shipped from area to area. It's a little less just what you've got on your own property. So that, that's when food really began to change in the South. I you think. know, Send, it makes me think about that as frustrating as we get about people being divided, now this is a tangent, but as frustrated as we get about people being divided and about people not caring about other people and people taking other people for granted and being entitled and all kinds of things, the <laughs> we have always... Think about it. When you cook for yourself at home, you don't cook your best. When you're cooking for other people, oh. especially especially people uh, that you sure. barely, especially people <laughs> that you barely know. Yes. Yeah. You yeah. know, yeah. it's it's crazy. But you you want to you want to cook your very best. Mm -hmm. You want to please them as much as possible. It's funny that that's built into us, and our culture just teaches or drags us away from that. It's a, it's a great shame. I mean the. Just thinking about the Native Americans who saved the people that, that landed Absolutely. and then had the world turned on them afterwards. <sighs> that, that's an entire, it's not a subject matter, but I, I don't think it can go unsaid. I agree. You know, that <clears throat> like remarkable injustice, the, the hospitality and then the injustice that follows. And, yes. and even wilder one, <laughs> I mean, the contribution of the African-American cooks the African cooks that were brought not willingly to what became the United States and made a contribution culinarily to the history on an incredible level. Absolutely. Incredible level. And continues that, that evolution and continues that contribution. I mean, that, those, those are things that, regardless of, of what we think about the development of individual items, mm -hmm. you know, it, that, and that subject is so large, that, and we're not remotely equipped to tackle that. But I, again, I don't think it can go unsaid. Well, it's the foundation of the cooking. The, the, it, without the indigenous people, well, without we cooks, without cooks, there's no cooking. Right, right, right. Without uh, all these incredible products, 
and also with the contribution of the Africans, it's just creates this cuisine that is so warm and spicy and full of life. And it's just incredible to uh, sit down to the table and recognize that all these really awful things happened. It's something that carries on throughout history to remind us of that because it is such a great cooking. Yeah. The, the conversation of history, we're, we're, we're going to have to stop just because we have recipes we have to get to. Okay. We have uh, cooking we have to, to get across to people and make sure we share. And honestly, cooking that stimulates uh, outraged emails because they're going to they're gonna send us emails to say, my mom didn't make it like that. <laughs> you know, right. so you can mm-hmm. email us formanwolf at wipr.org um, to send those outraged emails if you like or share a recipe. Um, but that's moving forward. Um, let's let's get into that on Formula Wolf on Food and Wine on WIPR. Welcome back to Foreman of Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And we're talking Southern food today. And we spent some time on history in the first segment. And Cindy, so let's hit the stuff that people, mm. that they want in their belly. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what What do you think are the 10 most important? Now, and your bent is very much towards the low country, so I may yes. chime in with something sure. else. good. As, as a Marylander with mm-hmm. Carolinian lineage, you know. Yeah. But, but... And low country food is super interesting and a very particular melting pot. But to you, you know, what what do you think of the, the, the 10 most important dishes? I don't know. I, you know, that's quite a question. But I mean, I think one I of I try the, to be difficult. Yes, I know. One of the first things I think about is cornbread and biscuits. I mean, you can, you know, that's 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 it. You know, you, you got to have and rice. You got to have that every day. And Man, you have to have rice at every meal. Two most romantic words in the English language are our language are cornbread and biscuits. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'll never forget reading one of the first cookbooks I read when I uh, started developing a menu for a restaurant in D.C. where I did low country cook- cooking the first time. Um, you know, a little girl was talking about how she went out to have lunch at a friend's house and, they, and she ran home crying because they didn't have rice. And I, I was just like, wow, I mean, that's, that's just how important it is. You know, she just couldn't even get her mind wrapped around a, a meal without rice. So there's so many different ways to make rice. So, you know, you said top 10 things. So um, gumbo, obviously, Creole, you know, some of the Creole sauces, uh, etouffee, uh, those, the, you know, the wonderful um, dishes that are so important to New Orleans cooking, fried okra, uh, collard greens. Mm, you know the, the the and some of those those uh, wonderful slow cooked pork dishes, Hop and John as well. Hop and John is one of the most basic of the beans and rice dishes that so many different cultures um, uh, have in their in their repertoire. And and I mean like black eyed peas, 
what we call Crowder peas, which are my absolute yeah. favorite bean all, in the all, planet. All, all the different field peas. Oh my goodness. They're just so flavorful and it's so exciting. I mean, I, I started working in Charleston, South Carolina in the 19, in 1984 and now, how many years later? I don't even want to think about how many years later it is. But anyway, um, you know, a lot of things weren't available then that used to be grown in that region for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And now, because of Glenn Rob, people like Glenn Roberts and Anson Mill, and you know, all these people doing this incredible work and research to bring back what they say the pathways of Southern cooking, all these wonderful old ingredients, they have come back. We are so fortunate to have these wonderful, well, first of all, farmers are growing it again. Carolina gold rice was not available for many years. So these are, you know, things of, some they, parts of our culinary world have really moved forward. They're definitely, not just in the South, but uh, all mm -hmm. over different parts oh, sure. of the country. There are farmers sure. growing for quality and not just quantity. Yeah, thank goodness. You yes. know, that's, we, the, that. Right. we don't necessarily... <laughs> Just as a nation, we don't necessarily need more food. We need to distribute it more correctly, and and we need it to be healthier. We need, and and there's the possibility for more and better flavor mm -hmm. if if we manage to manage our quantities of things. Mm -hmm. So I mean, you know, those are you know, you think about uh, there are also some French influences on particularly on Low Country cooking. So that kind of opens up another world of things that were favorites, um, but. I really, you know, I really think those African-based dishes uh, with the use of okra is just so extremely important. Um, it's thought of as a thickening agent um, because of its sort of unusual quality. And, you know, so you have okra, you have the indigenous tomatoes, which are so important to Creole and sauces like etouffee. Um, so it's, it's, and then the seafood dishes, you know, just the idea of, of fried oysters, fried, you know, anything fried, which we love when it's executed beautifully. Uh, I, I, I think of that as sort of a more modern day, say past, uh, you know, the 1900s, early 1900s cooking. And that's the other thing to think about. People, people, it's funny. I think, I think deep fried food gets a bad rap because people always think, oh, it's being cooked in fat. It must be loaded with fat. The fact that the fat is so hot mm -hmm. and the outside of whatever is being cooked uh, is sealed, especially if, if, let's say it's in a batter or something. Mm -hmm. um, you ever notice when you cut into something that's fried, I mean, the outside crispy, and especially if you blot it, there's no oil there. Right. And, the inside, when you when you cut into it, it just steams out. The reason we like fried food is because of the crispy exterior, and that has the caramelization, mm -hmm. and the moisture that's that's inside. Exactly. The food actually tastes more like itself. That that's why fried chicken is, you know, that I mean, obviously it's that's on the list if it's not the most universally popular thing on that list. Mm -hmm. And there are a bunch of different versions, but the best ones have to do with that. I mean, it, the chicken tastes more like chicken. It's moist. It has great flavor. Uh, it's been seasoned well. The mm. outside, you know, that, that there is a caramelized crust on that. Uh, that's lovely. Th there's a reason why cold fried chicken the next day <laughs> is about the best thing in the whole world. Well, and, and that's all true as long as you don't overcook it. And as well, long as you're using fresh oil and you have fresh product. Yeah. So like all cooking, that's what it comes down to. Oh, details. Yeah, I bought some green circle chickens the other day 
And for the first time in a long time, I put fried chicken on my menu. And uh, first of all, it sold out really quickly. (laughs) (laughs) People were pretty excited to see it, I think. And honestly, we were excited to make it because it had, you know, that was something, you know, I used to make it long ago and and consistently long ago. The, the, The whole, what you said was so correct. And, 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 and the other aspect of that is buttermilk is a little gem in, you, that you should have in your refrigerator. It is high acid and acid breaks things down. And so I will tell you that when I make my fried chicken, I make a mixture. It's a paste, but it's not too thick. It's almost just, like a slurry. Yeah. It's just thick enough. So it's buttermilk, all purpose flour, salt and pepper. And you put your chicken in that first. So it doesn't have to be in there that long. It can be a couple of hours. It can be 10 hours. You don't want it in there for days. Obviously, you want to cook fresh chicken. Um, but it can be in there for several hours. And then I, I right before we fry, it goes into a mixture of all-purpose flour, uh, a finely ground cornmeal, and bene seeds. And the nuttiness of the bene seed in that mixture is the magic. And the buttermilk and the slurry is the magic. It, it, it breaks down the chicken a tiny bit. It makes it tender and moist, and the nuttiness and the crunch of the sesame and the cornmeal, pfft, so good. Oh, I just made a funny I sound. I will admit, I, 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 <laughs> yeah, I'm making me hungry. That, I do the cheetah version of that, where I just go ahead and you know, put the cornmeal, like flour two to one with, with the cornmeal, but get some that's a bit coarse ground, mm-hmm. and then okay. just come right, out of, come right out of the slurry. All right. And... And just go ahead and fry that. I will tell you that I believe in whatever your, anyone's version is is the best version. I believe that. <laughs> you know? Well, if you if you, it's one of those like it it has to it has to work for you. Exactly. It has to work in your conditions. Mm-hmm. And if you like the result, you know that's yeah. And fresh fat, you know that's super yeah. important. Um, and you know that's probably more affected by a restaurant. I don't think someone at home is reusing fat. Oh, I hope not. Over and over again in a restaurant, it costs a lot of money to fill up a fryer. Uh, you're talking about 35, 45 pounds of, of uh, peanut oil. And right now that's extremely expensive. All oils are. so. Um, but that's what I would suggest cooking in at home. And uh, then the fun part of frying something, if you are immersing it in fat, is trying to figure out how to dispose of that. It's not the easiest thing in the world. But anyway. Uh, uh, while, we're on, while we're on frying things, mm-hmm. um, let's, let's talk about one or two other fried goodies. Okay. Uh, we're in Maryland. We soft are? shell, soft. Yeah, we are. Maybe not as much okay, on this episode, but soft shells. But we're yes, still, let's we're talk still about south those. of the Mason Dixon. <laughs> let's talk about soft shells because soft shells are coming up. Oh, I can't right? wait. Yeah, soft shells are coming up, and so how do you cook them, Tony? One, you oh, talk about soft shells. You want mine? All right. Yeah, I want it's okay. So I, I'm not going to. What I'm used to is a pretty normal Maryland pan fried. Okay. And honestly, and it's really good, but okay. Um, but yours is. You want me to give away my excellent. secrets? All well, right. No, no, no. We're, we're talking about we're talking about deep frying, and <laughs> you okay. deep fry yours, and I'm used so to pan frying. What I'm not going to do is tell you how to clean them because no Marylander needs to be told how to clean a crab. All right. So it goes into buttermilk as well, and that I do on pickup. So when I'm ready to cook those soft shells, I go into a a bowl or a you know some sort of deep pan. We we call them third pans, hotel pans. Um, with cold buttermilk and the soft shell clean soft shell goes in that then it goes into the same breading procedure i use for my oysters which is all-purpose flour cornmeal cayenne and salt 
and I cook my soft shells for no more than two and a half minutes. And I think that is something I don't overbread them and I don't overcook them. And I'm always in fresh fat. That's, so that's the, I, that's the, the not overcooking is a big deal. Yeah. And then and when if you're come, pan frying, them, it's the same thing. You just, you, it has to be really it's hot not a, and it it's can't be It's not a 10, 15 minute process. No. Um, and I, I get a, I, you know, a lot of people comment on our soft shells and I, I have a feeling that might have something to do with it, which is that we, we, we cook them pretty quickly. Um, it's the same thing with the oysters. Our oysters are down for about 45 seconds. So it depends on how big they are, but yeah. So I think we should move on from fried food. You know, one of the things that I really, um, think is also indicative of Southern cooking is spoon bread. And I would just love to introduce people to spoon bread because there's nothing like custard and spoon bread's great. Oh gosh. I love it so much. Um, one of my favorite, it's, it's it's a great foil for a lot of things. Oh yeah, for sure. It's a great foil for if. And we'll get to it, but but for a leaner protein, mm-hmm. it's nice to have that bit of richness on the plate. Yeah, well, um, I will tell you one of the first books I ever bought um, uh, when I was doing you know serious research in low country cooking or southern cooking in general, um, Southern Food by John Etcherton. And um, I, I just opened it before the show today, and I mean, I have notes about my father helping me find country ham for a restaurant that I opened in D.C., so that was quite a memory to reach back to. But um, his information in here is priceless. It's, it's, it's across the board. It's fantastic. He did a tremendous amount of research. But he is talking about uh, spoon bread, and it's something I've made since I opened that particular restaurant in D.C., and... it's the idea that in the South, you know, you would have, or well, and all over the country and probably all over the world that you, at there were times where people would entertain and put things in dishes on a, what we would call a sideboard or a hunt board and people would walk up and help themselves. Um, And that would typically have been at breakfast for sure. Um, Or maybe during a holiday when you're feeding a lot of people. So spoon bread, while it's called bread is nothing like bread and it is served in a big dish. It is a cornmeal based dish and it's made with eggs, cream and cornmeal and a little salt, maybe a little cayenne. And what you do is you heat the cream with a little bit of salt in the cayenne, maybe a little bit of black pepper as well. Add, um, I do a four to one ratio. So it would be for four cups of cream, one cup of uh, cornmeal. And you could also use polenta if you wanted to. And uh, just cook it very gently on low heat for about 15 minutes. And then you whisk in whole eggs, egg yolks, uh, and you do it like you would a liaison. You add half of it to the mixture, and then you add the mixture back to the other half of the eggs. Bake it in a custard dish. It can be a big one or small ones, individual ones. We do, of course, individual because we're a restaurant. And um, bake it in a water bath at about 275 degrees until they're done, which depends on your oven and depends on how big your spoon breads are. But, man, it is one of the most delightful things you can do. And And that's a great foil for pork. It comes back to... Pone and hogs. It's all about corn and hogs. Um, well, especially you know. if you have a pork shoulder that you oh. slow cooked and yeah. you can pull it or, you know, that. Mm-hmm. Aye, aye, aye. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So slow cooked pork. I mean, again, that comes down to there's, you know, the more fat there is in that pork, the tougher it is, the more people you can feed, the bigger the cut, the more people you can feed for less money. And that is exactly what the kind of thing we need right now. Um, people need to be able to feed feed folks for a fair amount of money and that's hard to do right now and uh with with both corn and and pork you can do that Uh, not as easily as you used to be able to but you can still do it so um you know always thinking when you're braising something do i want to sear it first most likely yes and then 
immersing in liquid, allowing some of that liquid to evaporate. Maybe you have a, a, pa- a lid halfway off, no lid. Maybe you're on the stovetop, maybe you're in the oven. Um, but whatever's best for you. But uh, slow cooking tenderizes that meat and really, you know, a little bit of things that maybe aren't traditional to the South, adding a little cumin, you know, jalapeno takes it to a different cu- culture. But in the South, it really would have been something simple like probably bay leaves and peppercorns and, um, you know, really not adding too much to it, a little bit of onion, maybe a little bit of garlic or something, and just let, let it cook slowly. Well, there's no lack of peppers in the South. True. That's no for sure. Peppers. Right. Another indigenous product. Exactly. That people think of as being from elsewhere. Oh, I, I love pumpkin. I mean, think, talking again about the indigenous people, you know, the pumpkin was so important. And wow, pork and pumpkin oh, is so good too. And corn, all of it. They grow together. If it grows together, it goes together. Right, Tony? I mean, that's, no, that's, that's, there's, there's your, that's so true. There's your wine natural. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, and I was so excited to see words again about like scuppernon grapes. Tony, I mean, did they make wine from that? Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, that, okay. that, my great grandmother, that was her big Ooh. favorite. Ooh, it was sweet wine from uh, from North Carolina. Okay. Exactly what um, hmm. the kind of wine that was most offensive to a European palate. <laughs> what, what was always called foxy. Oh. <laughs> it just meant it was kind of vulgar. Okay. Huh. That's you interesting. Know. Did people make it at home or? It, it both. Okay. Both. Now, it's, I tell you, the, uh, I'm gonna, I can't believe I'll be the first person to mention foie gras in this program because mm. that never happens. <laughs> but I've always had a fantasy about getting scuppernong grapes and making a conserve and having that with um, cold foie gras. Oh, okay. I can do that. <laughs> that sounds <Okay>. good. <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Happily. I mean, oh, I love it. Like, that would be fun. Well, they're just so... Um... Which was it? Which is it that we get here? Is it scuppernong or is it muscadine? Or do we don't get either one of them here? We, you bring me some kind of grape. I, I bring you a couple of different kinds of grapes, but not. not no, they're, they're they're from Pennsylvania, and they're oh, like Catawba and uh, Concords and okay, all right, all right, and that well, sort of thing. I think it's a, the scuppernong that has that sort of crazy perfume to it. It does. You know, oh, I love that, it and does. it's so much fun because you squirt the grape in your mouth and then you push all the juice out of the skin. Yum. Also probably pretty fun sorbet. Oh, perfect. All right. Well, that's a good place to stop. Well, stop this segment anyway. When we come back on formidable <laughs> phone food and wine, it's more Southern food, more recipes. And how in the world do you match wine with some of this stuff? On formidable phone food and wine on WIPR. Welcome back to Foreman of Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And we're talking Southern food today. And Cindy, I've got two big topics left on my brain about this. Okay. And there, there are so many. But one, barbecue. And two, fish. <laughs> okay, I'm going to add country fried steak to that. Oh. And well. gumbo. I really want to. I want to pop out a gumbo recipe so we can. Okay, all right. Then, all right cool. then, yeah, just just ignore my stuff. That's fine. No. 
in addition to. All right, let's talk you've, barbecue. You've, you've, you've had my, my uh, chicken fried steak adaptation, right? Yes, I have. <laughs> that's, that's the fancy one. See, you I, that, fancied it up. I definitely fancied it up because, look, I went, right. to, I went to college in Texas. When I got there, mm-hmm. I thought, you know, I saw a chicken fried steak on a menu. It's like This is the best thing in the history of things. Mm-hmm. because I love fried chicken, and I love steak. <laughs> and it was basically a cornmeal fried shoe. It was just the worst thing I'd ever had in my life. Uh-huh. And that's a, it that, that was be. really emotionally scarring, I tell oh, you. Oh, God. All right. All right. So young, you want me, you want me young, to tell young you how to do Baltimore? it where you won't be scarred? You, you can talk right. about it. Then, then if you want, all I'll right. talk about and the And then posture. you can tell your fancy... You the, can the, update the, the posh fancy. recipe, yeah. Okay. All right. Let's go with the one that isn't <laughs> posh, which is... You want to, you are going to, you can use a tough piece of meat, which we use top round. Um, so I used to do this at the place in DC. So you buy a top round, you cut out, cut out your steaks and we would do an eight ounce piece. Use a meat mallet. You want it, you want it to be, gosh, I always have a problem with thickness. Um, maybe half an inch thick. Um, but you would break that up with a, a good metal meat mallet. You pound um, it pretty you, good. Yeah, you, you don't pl- pound it into oblivion. You don't want it breaking up, but you do want to break up some of the sinew. And then, and then it's you can either do it like I said with my fried chicken recipe, or more traditionally it would be egg wash. So you would whisk eggs, and you would like to season that. So I put salt and pepper in the eggs, and then you would have flour in another pan, and that would have salt and pepper. And you go into the egg wash, and you go into the flour. And this is pan fried so you're not immersing it in fat you're cooking it in a pan hopefully a cast iron with you know some kind of good fat up to you can be beef fat which would be preferable if you have it um or it could be you know a neutral oil or corn oil or whatever you like but um it wouldn't be so awful to cook it in duck fat if you had some of that but that's and you cook it until it's golden brown on both (laughs) sides and you know you, you you want it you're cooking it just like you would fry any kind of uh, meat. And so that is a traditional country fried steak, chicken fried steak. Um, I think you think of a also, you know, if, uh, like I said, you could use a more, a batter more like what I do for my fried chicken. So let's hear the posh recipe, Tony. Well, I, the solution that I thought was, I love braised short ribs. Hmm. So if you have a yes. boneless, you, you braise boneless beef short ribs, mm-hmm. but don't take them to where they're falling apart. You take them to where they stay pretty firm. Okay. And and on previous episodes of this program, Cindy has talked about, and you can download episodes, go to the WIPR website, uh, look up the WIPR.org, look up the Former Wolf page, and look for an episode where it's about braising. And I'm certain that Cindy's talked about braising mm-hmm. short ribs. But you braise a beef short rib, and you get really good flavor. Um, and tender, but not falling apart. And then you do exactly the same thing. And the last, when you fry that, the last, you know, two, three minutes to, to get it hot, because you don't have to really cook it that way, uh, the, the getting it hot just relaxes everything too. And then it, it does the falling apart when you cut into it. Mm-hmm. And is a really, I don't know, that's yeah, a, seriously yes, good. yes, it's decadent, but yeah, that's, it's, it's seriously, seriously good. good. Yeah. So, one of the, I have to bring in one more thing too. Chick, chicken perlo, seafood perlo, that is the state dish of South Carolina. And it is, again, influenced by so many cultures in other countries. It's, you know, dish it's traditional to Spain, to Mexico. So it's, it's, it's the idea of making well, I mean, rice. It's, in the end, it, 
the origin is the hopanjan, right? The origin is the main dishes. Yeah, the, the probably most simple of all is hopanjan, yeah, which is black eyed peas and rice. So let's just do a chicken perlo. So you you break down your chicken, you would sear it lightly in the pan, uh, add it add it add uh, some sort of liquid, hopefully chicken stock, maybe a little bit of wine, a little bit of aromatics, carrot, celery, onion, a little bay leaf, peppercorn, and let that cook until it's tender. And then you can add whatever else you like. You want peppers in there. You um, would like some other type of herb. You want to add saffron. You want to add turmeric. You want to add curry. But once that t- chicken is nice and tender and you have a, still have a nice amount of broth, you add rice to the pot. And that is a perlo. And that rice is one of the best things because it absorbs all that wonderful cooking liquid. And it's the same thing, you know, if you, if, let's say you're making Hop and John, I'd prefer to use field peas or Crowder peas than a black eyed pea, um, just because I prefer that flavor, but, but black eyed peas are traditional as well. And you would cook that with a piece of fat back, water, fat back, Tabasco, some sort of hot sauce, some sort of spice that's you know, cayenne. It could just be cayenne if you want. And then once those peas are done, again, you just add rice to the pot. And it is it is a very important uh, dish to the cooking of that re- of those different regions. But you wanted to talk about barbecue? Yeah, just that. So, I mean, there's so many different kinds. Mm-hmm. And we're going to take Texas barbecue and put it here on the side. Okay. Right. But across the south, I mean, what... How many, not just style of cooking, but just types of sauce. How many different kinds of barbecue sauce can you think of? Right, so many. And, you know, I love a vinegar-based barbecue. That is my, my all-time favorite. I just do. Um, I like that acid with the with the pork. And um, there is nothing better than smoked pork. I mean, that's what barbecue is supposed to be, is slow cooked in a smoker. And, what what, um, what I don't want is something that tastes like ketchup that got seasoned. I agree with that. That yeah. that may, you know, please don't add molasses to ketchup or something. Yeah, I was going like to say that. something sweet. Yeah, that's kind of weird. But, oh my gosh! Yeah, but there there are a lot of different types of barbecue in our country, and and again, it's so personal. It's like you know, any regional cooking, and and down to families all over the world. You know, I, I'm a sucker heard. for that that Savannah style. Mm-hmm. You know, mustard seeds and and lots of vinegar and sweet onions. So fun. I mean, in this part of the country, I think just because of uh, one particularly well-known restaurant, that Memphis-style barbecue sauce, mm-hmm. you know, that, that kind of barbecue is, is the best known, which is a bit sweet and a bit black peppery, but it's, it's definitely your own, your own variation. It's just fun well, to look at the recipes. They're so diverse. Right, right. And yeah, I mean, just looking at a recipe, uh, you know, earlier for, uh, you know, different types of, of uh, wood. Is it in a pit? Is it not in a pit? Is it in, you know, one of these wonderful smokers that you can get now that are huge that, I mean, there's just, you can use an oil drum. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that it's been done and, and continues to be done. And it, it's, it's cool. You know, there's a, there's a guy in Charleston, I, I can't remember his name. Um, I'll try and find it. But there's a guy in Charleston that's become very famous for his barbecue. And, um, you know, I remember when the family was out on, uh, out in Mount Pleasant, which at that, when I lived in, in down that, in that region, um, Mount Pleasant was not very populated. Uh, it's very populated now. And, uh, the ladies, uh, w- were along the road doing their sweet grass baskets and, uh, weaving them and selling them. And, and, uh, this, this fellow had his, uh, family's, uh, barbecue. And I mean, 
uh, he sold out very quickly. I mean, each day it was, it was a, a really loved, um, thing. And, um, that, that's also extremely important to our history. Um, and yeah, I, I could eat that right now. I, Makes me so hungry to think about it. <laughs> I can't. I can't. I can't stand it. Actually, I may have to go to Charleston. That's a, yeah, we. You know, we just did a brunch program, and it would be yeah, barbecue brunch. Is, it sounds pretty darn good. Mm. I tell you, you that's. You, a, it, it is hard to. It is definitely hard to think of wine with barbecue. A lot of Southern food, it works. Mm-hmm. One of the best things in the whole world is when you fry that soft shell crab in that style. Mm-hmm. A cold glass of champagne with that. Is Ooh. Fr- that's just <laughs> yes, amazing. <please. laughs> just, well, the sweetness of the crab really mm. shows off, you know. Well, and you know, talking about barbecue, you can't not talk about ham. I mean, we we have some spectacular producers of ham in our country now, and um, Devonley Edwards is one of my favorite producers currently. Yeah, oh, spectacular. Oh, that ham is so good. And talk about brunch. I mean, if I was going to have brunch it would absolutely be with some of that edwards ham rodney scott again thank you to our producer that is exactly who i am talking about and he is a talented fellow um head, head you're talking directly. about rodney scott or you're talking yeah. about luke spignall our producer well both of them um <laughs> I, i'll take both uh <laughs> rodney scott and charleston um i'm not sure how far out he's branched but yeah his his barbecue is fantastic go get some when you go there fish yeah. tony you said something about fish what do you want to do with southern fish? Well, I mean, Cindy, what I mean, one, I think of a fish fry, and people, huh. people don't realize how good that can be, and that usually means pan fried. That's that's not like right. You're not making fish and chips. No, and, right, and, right. And what's available is not that kind of fish. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's I mean, uh, it's it's you could grill a whole side of grouper, perhaps. Oh, and pull yes, it from please. the bone. That's pretty yes, great. Please. Yes, please. You know, that, but I mean, just think of all the different versions of a, of a fish fry that you can have. But that's kind of mm-hmm. I, I recall being a kid going to see my great grandmother's family in North Carolina mm-hmm. and going to a fish fry, and it was crazy good. I bet. And growing up in Baltimore, all the shellfish we we had that cornered pretty well. But oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. That's that fun. was amazing, yeah. That's a treat. Groupers and snappers and oh and, gosh, uh, I love grouper. So, but that's well, and you know how, how about how about for you? What do you, what do you think is the well, I was, I was the just best say, traditional treatment of uh, of southern I, fish? I think it comes down to what's the accompaniment. You know, I mean, whether you grill it or saute it or fry it or whatever. I, we we talked about a little bit about etouffee, but I, I'd like to give a recipe. Now, I think what's interesting about etouffee is that it does not have tomato products. I think I might have said it had tomato in earlier. It does not traditionally. Um, etouffee is the holy trinity. Celery, onions, peppers. And etouffee traditionally has a very, very, very light roux. So roux is butter and flour used as a thickening agent and very traditional in gumbos and, and, and cooking in, in uh, New Orleans or in Louisiana. So you would have some sort of a stock. You would either have fish stock, shrimp stock. Um, yeah, well, that's your choice, fish or shrimp. And I like shrimp stock because it's easy to make. All you do is put shells in a pot with cold water on, bring it up to a boil. You don't have to put anything else in there, just shells. They're, they should be clean. Cold water, bring it up to a boil. Turn it off, strain it, you have shrimp stock. Sweet, pretty, clean, awesome if you have fresh shrimp. 
So etouffee, saute, you know, do a small dice of uh, mostly onion, a little bit, uh, 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 maybe, maybe like 50% onion, 25% celery, 25% green pepper. And honestly, I use poblanos now. I'm not fond of bell peppers at all. Um, well, not green bell peppers. And um, so I use poblanos, but that's your choice. All small dice, saute it in a little bit of fat of some sort, preferably a pork fat. And then once it's getting a little bit soft, add a little bit of butter and flour, sort of mix it all in with those vegetables. Now add your shrimp stock, bring it up to a boil, turn it down to a slow simmer and let it just simmer for, it doesn't take long, maybe 15 minutes, but you want salt in there, a little cayenne pepper, just a little bit of sort of what we think of as Creole spice, cayenne pepper, black pepper, white pepper if you like it, dried thyme, basil, oregano. Very little bit of all those things, very, very little, because you will blow it up if you put too much oregano, basil, and or thyme in there. And cayenne is up to you how spicy you want it. Let it cook. That's it. That's the end of the story. It's so good. It's so perfect for fish. That and a piece of grouper. That and a piece of our local rockfish. Uh, I've I've recently served that and people just have gone crazy for it. Now, I L- add a local little... Local fluke right now is good oh, price. That would and, be so and good. Good quality and, and really mild, pretty fish and show off sauce. Well, and the fun thing about that is, is you could serve it with a piece of fried fish or a piece of roasted fish or sauteed or grilled so yeah it's really it's, it's more it's almost etouffee. more condiment than sauce mm-hmm. we're gonna do, talk a moment about wine with this food think about all the different like classical matches we've talked about over time mm-hmm. in different cuisines southern food is not easy okay you know i mean that most of the very subtle things are not going to work with full flavored cooking and corn isn't so much of it Mm-hmm. You know, pork is in so much of it. Um, that corn is always like the spoon bread you're talking about making. That's a great excuse for big, rich California Chardonnay. Honestly, that's that's definitely something that's going to work well. When um, people talk about you know, when they talk about big buttery oaky Chardonnays, that's that's probably what you want for a lot of this stuff. A lot of the seafood has some sweetness to it, whether it's heads on shrimp or or uh, different shellfish and fish preparations. Red wines, again, in general, you don't need a tremendous amount of tannin, but you do want a whole lot of flavor. Good excuse for red Zinfandel. Okay. And even Petit Syrah from the West Coast, if you want something a little bit denser than that. What, what would you drink with grouper and the etouffee, if that's what, what they did? Grouper right. and the etouffee. Actually, maybe West Coast Syrah. Might do really, really well. Okay. Um, because they're not particularly tannic, and, and they have real breath to them. Peppers are a tricky match, though. You know, that's I. I look a little bit to Spain there as well, more to Galicia. Okay. So. All right. But yeah, that's that's it's funny when you you began with the history. I mean, the history is you know Madeira was the biggest wine in the New World. It was shipping ballast. It was so cheap to produce. It was shipping ballast on the trade routes. And uh, Savannah so and Baltimore and, and New York were the big ports. They, uh, they, said, you know, they sold us the cheapest wine that they used as ballast. <laughs> it's just, it's mm-hmm. kind of crazy. It's also wine that survives for you know de- centuries. Well, that's all we have time for. Uh, if you want to download this, 
or any other one of our episodes, please go to the WIPR website, WIPR.org. Look up the Foreman Wolf page, and there's a whole menu of goodies there for you. If you want to correspond with us via email, it's foremanwolf at wypr.org. To follow Chef Cindy Wolf on social media. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as Chef Wolf. My Instagram is the real Tony Foreman. And thanks for listening. Happy Sunday.